0: We're talking about unprecedented, and I think that was also the conclusion. You know, as you mentioned, drawn by the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee. Could you do? Could you effectively have almost everything done away from the border? Yes. Is that how every where it works everywhere else? No. (laughs) Uh, So this this is. I think that's why you need some humility when saying, well, of course you can do everything away from the border. Yes, but I think understand the nature of what you're proposing and how unprecedented it is.
1: The referendum has been held. Letter has triggered Article 50, uh, Britain's decision to leave, and the process is underway. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It is not in our interests to see the Republic of Ireland do anything other than prosper. We cannot agree to do this unless we have firm guarantees that there will not be a hard border in Ireland.
2: Hello and welcome to the latest installment of Paddy Wants to Know Brexit. Today we'll hope to get through three Ts, uh, transition and trusted traders. Uh, to get through that, I'm joined by my co-host uh, <laughs> Brian Mann. Welcome all, Brian.
1: All of the alliteration there Jack.
2: We're recording this um, before the council meeting.
1: So why why are we talking transition Brian? What's The main point from the transition period is that uh, even though Britain technically leaves March next year, 2019. A transition will the transition period, a standstill transition period, where basically not an awful lot will change. Will go through until the 31st of December, 2020, when is which is when the UK will actually fully, in theory, be gone, and they will have everyone hopes a future trade agreement also signed.
2: So, instead of transition period, it should really be just nothing changes, except they can't make any decisions
1: or have any (laughs) contribution to the decision-making process. That's kind of where it gets a bit interesting, I think, because the EU have actually said that the UK can negotiate, sign and implement trade deals with other countries around the world. Now, this would look ostensibly like quite a a big deal for the UK, but I think this is a no-lose situation for the EU. The UK gets to negotiate, but who's going to sign anything with them when no one knows what their future relationship or access to the EU single market will actually be?
2: Yeah, and I mean, in terms of implement, like,
1: it'll come into play once they leave. Yeah, but what country in the world or other trade bloc in the world, you could argue, would want to sign a deal or would be in a position to sign a deal when they themselves do not know what the UK's future trade relationship with the EU will actually look like. What will their access to the single market be? So with all of that uncertainty flying about, it seems highly unlikely that the UK will strike a trade deal in this time. To say nothing of the fact that a trade deal on average takes around four years. And as Barnier said, I think with a bit of a a wry smile um, to reporters after the, the conference, the UK has to renegotiate or go back into over, I think, 750 international treaties and organisations Um, as a result of leaving Brexit. So they have to get all of that in order, get get their own house in order before they start going out and getting trade deals. So it's a bit of a no-lose situation for the EU. There's a couple of other um interesting points. EU citizens arriving in the UK between the two dates. so I think it's the 30th, 31st of March to the 31st of December 2020, any EU citizens going into the UK in that period will accru- will have the same rights as they do now as the UK being members of the EU. That's a a, that's a big climb down, isn't it? That's a big climb down. That, that was a big no-no for, for, for the UK government for a long period of time. But it appears they've, they've, they've backtracked on that. And, and another interesting point within that is fishing was, funnily enough, a, a, a really big issue. In Sorry, here. was that the first time someone's ever said interesting
2: and fishing policy in the same.
1: Well we're going to discuss it on our podcast in a future date so we'll make sure it's really interesting. But the the UK again wanted to leave the common fisheries policy which a lot of British fishers would say was detrimental to their livelihoods. And and this is a big issue in Scotland
2: because they mm-hmm. took I think the Conservative Party took 12 seats pretty much based on fisheries policy from the SNP. Yeah, certainly Which, a lot of the rural ones and ones based on... So there's a split uh, within the Conservative Party, particularly the Scottish ones, over this particular point. As
1: you say, Jack, has uh, annoyed, uh, shall we say, a lot of uh, Scottish Tory MPs. But I also think Nicola Sturgeon has come out and criticised that as well. So there, there's there's, a lot That of, wasn't a fish <laughs> reference there, was <laughs> no, it? No, no she's no, actually no. called Nicola... Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> terrible, terrible jokes, listeners. Broader point worth noting the document itself was divided into three colours green, white, and yellow. Green was fully signed off, yellow was there's some language to be worked around in, and white was there's no real agreement uh, at the moment on these issues. But what we're looking at here now, so just on that point, because some mm-hmm. troll who's familiar to both of us actually
2: um, said that you know it was an opportunity missed and that the yellow should have been orange and they could have really. Property (laughs) trolls. Really,
1: really hammered home the Irish issue. And on that very point, um, the issues around the border in Northern Ireland were were all fully white. In the main, there was very small parts of it green and yellow, but in the broad strokes of it, it it was white. And that effectively kicked the can down the road for another, you know, six, seven months. um, Which gives people time and space to try and figure out what in God's name they're going to do about the border. But it certainly hasn't solved. It. And I mean
2: we we talked about the sort of the, the seeming compromise in both sides. So we're gonna listen now to some of the reaction and then we can just talk around this the so-called backstop option and what it actually means. And I'm happy to repeat again the draft legal text that the Commission has has published if implemented, would undermine the UK common market and threatens the constitutional integrity of the UK by creating a customs and regulatory border down the Irish Sea. No UK Prime Minister could ever agree to it.
0: It is a text that no British Prime Minister could agree to. It has achieved the seemingly impossible of uniting the British Parliament against
1: it and i'll forget about the girl that said no then i'll tell who i want where to go make no mistake both the united kingdom and the european union are committed to the joint report in its entirety and in keeping with that commitment we agree on the need to include legal text detailing the backstop solution for the border between northern ireland and ireland in the withdrawal agreement, that is acceptable to both sides.
2: The backstop will apply unless,
1: uh, until another solution is found. But it remains our intention to achieve a partnership that is so close as to not require specific measures in relation to Northern Ireland. Maybe today.
2: So no British Prime Minister would ever sign up to this. She wasn't exactly being very clear on that, was she?
1: And yet apparently she did. So this is where it looks like the UK has accepted the concept of a backstop deal, but not necessarily the backstop deal that has been, uh, you know, we we spoke about in, in the last podcast. This is the one thing that the Irish government are absolutely insisting upon. This is the one deal that, in the worst-case scenario, Northern Ireland remains within the customs union and the single market. I don't see how Ireland steps back from that. Angela Merkel gave her full support to this, and I just don't know how the Brits are going to wriggle their way out of it. One can only hope that we actually do get Plan A or B, um, and we don't have to come to Plan C, because... That would probably be the worst of all words because the UK government would be under intense pressure domestically not to honour that commitment because it would, you know, to be blunt, potentially break up the inviability of the the broader UK. I think it's interesting. And I mean, in the second part of the podcast, we'll be speaking to an expert
2: on the sort of economics and trade Mm -hmm. of it. But we've talked about the Good Friday Agreement before and we can get lost in figures of trade and and where it goes and stuff. But I think on the more fundamental point, if there was the border in the Irish Sea, which, I mean, effectively this backstop would do, Mm -hmm. the fudge within the Good Friday Agreement was that the unionist community within Northern Ireland could claim their British identity and be part of Britain. And there's obviously the issue then of consent and the um, nationalist community can still travel freely south and also claim that nationalist identity within a broader European Union perspective. And that's
1: that's number, really that's the nub of it. That's really so like we will address the economics, but that's also a bigger that's the the bigger philosophical underpinning of this issue. I remember I I, I lived in the UK throughout the, the referendum period and people would routinely ask me, you know, what's the big deal about Northern Ireland? It's going to be fine. You're making a fuss over nothing. And just time and time again, I was just saying it, it's much bigger than you realise, you know it's an an existential question about identity and ultimately that comes down to politics and you have the UK on one side, one could argue, leaving on identity grounds, on control of immigration, on bigger issues than just economics. This is the same for Ireland on this issue Um, If I was the Irish government I'd be a little worried though at the same time because the longer we kick this can down the road, the more pressure there is from all the other member states and their business communities and their local groups who are also worried about Brexit to get a deal and have some sort of border on the island of Ireland. And the, the closer we get to October when we need to wrap this up and get it through all the parliaments around Europe, the more pressure inevitably will come on Ireland. I mean, I think the sympathy then turns to
2: resentment. And... Yeah. Um, We'll take a break there, Um, and next we'll be talking to an expert on trade.
1: When we leave the European Union, we won't have to impose any border. Uh, The problem here is that uh, the British government's stated position uh, in December and still now is that they want to ensure that there is no border uh, infrastructure between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland that there is no barriers to trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom and that the United Kingdom is leaving the customs union in single market. I mean, those three things are simply not compatible. I mean, those three things are simply not compatible. But if we do, that's what the European Union wants and we go along with it. The losers will be the Republic of Ireland. The economy of the Republic of Ireland would be in very bad shape. Welcome back after the break. We have um, a really excellent guest we're delighted to have around the line. It's uh, Ali Renison, who's the head of Europe and trade policy for the Institute of Directors uh, in the UK. Thanks very much for coming on, Ali. Sure
0: thing. Glad to be here.
1: Ali, you are actually in, in Northern Ireland today at a, a workshop kind of on what's the state of play with Northern Ireland in regards to negotiations and what the possible solutions are.
0: I think a lot of the businesses and other stakeholders who were there were looking to try and get some clarity beyond what they read in the press and the headlines about where things have landed, what sort of the short and long-term future in terms of the negotiations might hold, you know, what kind of things they might needing to be looking at now would be. Um, So sort of a, a comprehensive look at sort of the state of play. Um, You know, people wanted to know, are there things that they can do now? Um, How might they make potential opportunities, if there are any, um, uh, to be made out Mm -hmm. of Brexit? So it was a pretty wide-ranging discussion.
1: So I suppose a lot of businesses in Northern Ireland would be looking at practical elements. And we see a lot of discussions uh, and reading You know, myself and Jack reading lots of transcripts from from the House of Commons and from the Oireachtas here. And they they talk about, you know, trusted traders, schemes and I think it's authorized economic operators and Mm. kind of suggestions from different institutes about drones and all that. But if you could just in the first instance, explain to us what is a trusted trader? Does it solve the problems uh, or any of the problems?
0: Yeah. So the trusted trader sort of initiative, so to speak, isn't something that's just unique to the EU. There are lots of other countries that have it. It's for um, uh, companies who do a lot of international trade uh, so that they can reduce their risk profile um, and make it less likely that, you know, when their product um, is traveling across borders, they're lowered risk profile because you submit all this information about um, data about your company, about the kind of products that you trade, how frequently, etc. means that you are less likely um, uh, to be pulled aside for, have your product pulled aside for inspection. So it doesn't remove it completely, but it makes it um, less likely.
2: From my understanding, you need to have sort of a three-year track record to obtain this in terms of the transition period and then we don't quite know what's after that is the three-year thing to get this trusted trader is that after the transition period when the new rules will presumably come in
0: well i think that's you've identified one of the issues with how authorized economic operator status as it's sort of constructed under eu law um uh, how you qualify for it so by and large, under law to date and the Union Customs Code, um, you effectively need, you know, because the whole point of it is that it's not designed for companies that are trading internally within the EU because you don't have customs issues to deal with, in effect. It's for those who are trading with third countries. So they expect companies to have already had some track record of trading um, with the EU as a third country. I think in a sense that may actually um, uh, help to some extent with what's going to be necessary to make it more relevant for smaller companies who are just used to doing, whether it's entry you trade or trade north to south across the irish border there will need to be some amendment made or provision made to Uh, allow companies that uh, uh, wouldn't normally qualify for AEO, that would be something that would be introduced by HMRC, but it would effectively have to be negotiated with the EU. Um, So it's not clear at what stage that's going to happen. Um, There isn't a huge amount of guidance right now, to be honest, coming out from the customs authorities in the UK about uh, whether companies should be applying for it now uh, as currently constructed or not.
2: And I mean, as we were talking about earlier before you joined us, actually, about the transition period, the rules would stay the same. But if there were to be a divergence further down the road, would these traders then have to reapply and then would there be another three year delay to get this trusted trader? So you'd be starting again.
0: So I'm not sure that's that would necessarily be be the case. Uh, you know, again, a lot of a lot of things depend on what are the consequences for loss of market access. I mean, I think one of the things that you have touched on is, you know, if everything is staying the same, um, at least to sort of to start out with, and it becomes a choice for divergence. You know, uh, would there be any need for companies to uh, sort of acquire these kind of trusted trader accreditations? Um, Now, first of all, that sort of depends on what the outcome of the agreement is to begin with between the UK and the EU. Um, But as far as we look at it, I mean, one of the reasons that you get these sort of trusted trader accreditations um, is less to do with, let's say, divergence relating to um, uh, regulatory issues, but more. If your um, uh, company is based in a country like the, EU will, uh, like the UK that will become uh, a part of a different customs territory to the, UK, to, to the EU, and as far as we know, the government does not want to and does not envision going with the backstop option that the EU has put forward that would um, have Northern Ireland stay part of the EU's customs territory, then you would need to be uh, applying for it anyways. Um, so it wouldn't be a case of waiting to see where the divergence is. The assumption is, is that you are going to have uh, sort of different customs territories between the UK and the and therefore companies are going to need to be itself.
1: So you have the application fee you probably have to train somebody up all that time it, time is money you know all of these costs add up for small and medium-sized enterprises and I just wonder how much of an impediment is that and would one would imagine the UK government would be offering training or subsidies um, or incentives or tax breaks for companies to do this uh, do any of these exist yet?
0: Uh, Not really. I mean, it's interesting when you think about the fact that actually the vouchers that are being provided by Intertrade Ireland are effectively, even though they're open to Northern Irish companies, are effectively being funded by the Irish government because it's only the Irish government that's actually set aside specific earmarked money for Brexit planning and preparation, at least for for companies themselves. Um, We know that the UK government has set aside general preparation money, I think, for government expenditure. Um, But we've already, we called on the government uh, last Year um, going into general election for whatever government that was formed to uh, bring forward either a sort of voucher scheme or allow sort of Brexit preparation to be tax deductible against, you know, for the basically be treated like a research and development tax credit. Um, uh, because we think that's an important way of sort of um, aiding and assisting companies in their preparation.
1: So, I suppose building on that, what is the kind of the IOD position on kind of Northern Ireland and what do you think are kind of realistic solutions? Uh, or movements towards getting a deal in place what's the iod position on that
0: well we i mean i think the where we stand on it is that you know any solution should be as uk wide as possible but the way in which that we've sort of made our positions clear as to say you know instead of making it a choice between um you know uh, north and south border and east west we think that the uk um, should stay in some form of limited uh, customs union with the eu so effectively when you look at things like um uh what are the biggest challenges that um, companies would face outside of a customs union, both in terms of physical movement of goods, but also in terms of um, general costs to uh, doing trade across borders, you find that some of the biggest issues relating to the application of rules of origin to prove that your, your goods would qualify for any sort of preferential or continued preferential tariff treatment with the EU, sometimes the cost of Proving that, particularly sourcing all your parts, outweighs the actual the tariff savings. So people end up, you know, it renders the tariff free deal effectively meaningless for a lot of companies. And for manufacturing, yeah. that's the biggest issue. Um, it's still it's still an issue for some agri food companies, uh, but you're less likely to have parts coming from all over the world, particularly with perishable items, than you are with manufacturing, which will have so, you know whether it's chemical compounds, things coming from all over the world. So that's why we've said that we think that the UK should stay in a in a, in a partial customs union, similar in scope to what Turkey
1: has. So Turkey actually point I was going to come to a A customs union. So are you nearly more aligned with where the Labour Party is at the moment?
0: I don't think to the same extent because we, you know, where the Labour Party, what the Labour Party is asking for is a totally comprehensive customs union that would cover all goods. Um, uh, and we think as a compromise because um, it's not clear whether how that would work in respect of the UK's trade policy going forward. We do think that there is an asymmetry in the Turkish relationship, but that it's soluble if it's just limited to um, uh, manufacturing products because they're pretty low. The issue becomes if you're in the agricultural sector and the UK. The EU negotiates so that you have to open up your markets to, um, uh third countries, but not necessarily having that immediate reciprocal access that would potentially become quite unsustainable from an agricultural point of view, because then basically people have huge access to your markets and not necessarily automatically reciprocated. So I think that's where we sort of slightly but diverge with the Labour Party is saying, let's keep it limited to predominantly industrial products. Um, they're the ones that are going to be most affected by rules of origin and rules of origin related checks crossing the border. Um, So I think there's a slight difference. But the point that we made is that it really should be, you know, um, uh, you know, a new customs union should be something that the government is prioritizing, even if the scope is slightly different. And we're not saying it should be as comprehensive as what maybe the Labour Party are looking at.
2: And I note that your point there is you'd like a kind of a UK wide solution. We also had a little chuckle at your tweet uh, where you wondered whether it should be Londonderry or or dairy. you've obviously you deal mainly with businesses on the uk mainland and you're in dairy at the moment while we're speaking is there a big difference between the two businesses in terms of their approach fears opportunities towards brexit
0: i think it's a little bit more and and actually interestingly um i now spend more time you know in terms of i it used to be brussels that i traveled to most of the time or scotland or yorkshire sometimes now i probably in terms of the one location uh that i spend most of my time in it's actually northern ireland at the moment rather than any other place so look have um, become. I've become pretty pretty attuned to sort of what the businesses, whether they're in Belfast, Derry, Fermanagh, and et cetera, are saying. And I think it's a little bit more uh, acute in terms of people's um, sense, sort of awareness of it. Whether it's sort of looking at uh, east-west trade or north-south trade, um, the sort of scale I think of businesses who trade in goods certainly uh, tends to be larger than um, you know companies, particularly you know when you look at Uh, A lot of sort of mainland UK is um, more services than just goods. And I think there's a much heavier concentration of agri-food industry, you know, uh, on the island of Ireland. And therefore, agri-food is one of the more exposed uh, sectors to, particularly on the regulatory side, divergence. And that's why I think also coming back to the question about, you know, what's our position on sort of the future relationship? You know, our members are clear across the board that they want to maintain full regulatory alignment um, with the rules of the single market. And I think on areas like agri-food regulation, you know, you can have mutual recognition of services and in other areas of goods. Um, I think that's less feasible in terms of agri-food regulations, because if you look at, for example, you know, the U.S. and the EU both think they have high standards, but they definitely don't think that their standards are the same. Um, So I think it's hard to sort of argue that from an agri-food regulatory space, That, you know, the UK and the EU can have divergent but similar in outcome, you know, if if one side bans a pesticide and the other one doesn't, that's a pretty clear divergence um, uh, on regulatory standards. So I think on agri-food regulations, that's one of the areas where you're not really going to have mutual recognition. I think it's probably likely the UK for, for some time is going to stay you know, uh, locked in step very closely with the EU's, what we call sanitary and phytosanitary um, uh, regime, because that's one of the things that would, if you had really sort of any material divergence, that would necessitate border inspection posts, veterinary checks, etc. And that's where I think, because it's such a higher concentration of the agri-food industry in Northern Ireland compared to mainland UK, um, you see it, people are much more attuned to it.
2: Back in August 2017, th- there was talk of... Um... Basically, an exemption for small businesses trading um, and small firms was that. What was the reaction of the IOD to that?
0: It's. I think the exemption question is very difficult. You know, it was interesting to look at um, the evidence that was given by the Norwegian customs authorities, who have, uh, you know, still a, they still have customs posts on the border at border crossings between Sweden and Norway, although they share sort of participation in the single market and. The, the customs official was asked about, you know, whether an exemptions were possible, and her response was quite, you know, um, candid, and she looked almost surprised, you know, effectively saying, "We don't, we don't do exemptions. Doesn't mean we check everyone. Far from it. But it doesn't mean that we just agree blanketly to exempt traders below a certain threshold. Um, it may be something." It it may be something that's more relevant for because of the political sensitivities. You know, it may be something that the EU does need to look at, but their response will effectively be what's to stop big loads, um, you know, from being sort of divvied up into smaller consignments, um, you know, so.
1: But that's kind of the nub of the problem. Let me just ask you a straight question. Is there going to have to be some sort of checks on the border of Ireland from kind of your kind of policy perspective and from what you kind of you've much deeper of understanding of these issues than we do like is is it just a reality there'll have to be some checks
0: so it depends on the outcome of the agreement um now if you were to say um if you know i think there's more room for wiggle room for interpretation about what does alignment to the rules of the single market mean you could ha- you could be outside of the single market but follow all of the rules of the single market for all intents and purposes now um uh, you know so if you are part of the common veterinary area and you are totally part of the eu's regime for um uh, agri-food regulations then you don't need to have those kind of checks <clears throat> however if you're not in any kind of customs union um there need will there will need to be checks relating to duty considerations even if they're not spot checks along the border so from from our standpoint i think the question is not You know, if you're not in a customs union, will there be checks? It's where are they done? Um, And you can, you could conceive of doing them at commercial premises, for example. Um, That's a burden on business. uh, But, you know, I think that is the trade-off. If you are that wedded to not having any physical infrastructure, um, no physical checks at the border, how far inland are you taking the checks becomes the question.
1: One would imagine there would have to be a significant investment in Northern Ireland, surely, if for customs officers to kind of travel around northern ireland as opposed to there being one single spot
0: exactly and i think i think that there you know that's where a lot will rest um uh first you have to you know you have to know whether you're going to have border inspection posts and that depends on the outcome um and then you have to have a discussion about what kind of data sharing and cooperation is both needed, but also politically feasible, um, uh, not only between customs authorities, but between, um, you know, police and security services mm-hmm. uh, to understand what to, what what not only sort of, you know, because when you look at, for example, um, the there was a, a draft uh, leak last year from the Irish revenue commissioners authority that was talking quite plainly about what I would consider to be physical infrastructure and border crossings. Um, now, that is not necessarily the position of the Irish government and um, the police services of Northern Ireland. So you need to have that discussion, you know, happening between policymakers who are drawing up the the policy agreement uh, alongside the customs authorities, alongside the security services. So is it acceptable to have, um, as was suggested by the, the Swiss, you know, wearing two hats or having Swiss customs officers going into Germany? Is that is that feasible? Is that acceptable? Um, uh, if you are doing it sort of across the Irish border, um, and and that's something for you know both sides politically decide. You know if that's what's necessary, is that acceptable?
2: And and recently the um, Westminster's Northern Ireland um, Affairs Committee had a look at borders across, particularly across mm. Switzerland, as you mentioned there, and this magical solution to do with technology. I mean, they were quite blunt in saying it's not there yet anywhere. Mm. And you're talking there about the inevitability almost of a hard well, hard border or infrastructure at least. I know we're talking in the vacuum of we don't know what the final deal is yet. What's the optimum solution for for the IOD in this?
0: I think it was interesting to listen to Tony Buckley. He made a did an interview last year. He's in the sort of the I'm pretty sure it's the Irish Revenue Commissioner's office. And he talked about his dream. He had a picture of an unmanned border crossing in on the Swiss, I think, Swiss-German border, certainly on the Swiss border. And I think that's where people are kind of hoping that could you have something um, that doesn't have people on it, doesn't have cameras, but would somehow allow you to remotely monitor, um, you know, uh, the border for what people might deem to be sort of suspicious vehicles. Um, And a lot of that has, you know, would probably, I think the difficulty with um, the report, the sort of smart borders report put out by Lars Carlson is that, you know, it did have some interesting suggestions on where technology plays a role, whether it's on, um, you know, advanced notifications, it's on um, uh, automatic number plate recognition. But at the end of the day, there was something that needed to have the technology routed through. So in his case, it was gates, it was e-gates for people. Yeah. So I think the challenge mm-hmm. is, how do you do
1: this? Which I suppose just clarify, wouldn't be acceptable. Um, no, it I,
0: wouldn't. I, I, both both the UK and the Irish government said yeah. um, it was very, you know, including the UK government uh, as recently as last week, when they were asked about it in the House of Commons, said that it wouldn't be acceptable. It wouldn't meet the criteria of no physical infrastructure. So you're left with this question of how do you, you know, um, I don't think you can necessarily do away with all of the risk profile in advance. So how do you monitor, um, even if they're unmanned, you know, uh, um, uh, the border remotely? And how? What? What is it routed through? How is it filtered through? And I think that's where the data sharing and the intelligence sort of collaboration comes into the the equation most crucially.
1: Is Northern Ireland is is kind of the the testing ground for what would appear to me to be not being an expert on this at all. Probably the most innovative border oh, yeah. solution in the world.
0: We're, we're talking about unprecedented, yeah. and I think that was also the conclusion. You know, as you mentioned, drawn by the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee. Um, could you do? Could you effectively have almost everything done away from the border? Yes. Is that how everywhere it works everywhere else? No. <laughs> um, uh, so this this is. I think that's why you need some humility when saying, "Well, of course, you can do everything away from the border." Yes, but I think understand the nature of what you're proposing and how unprecedented it is.
1: And in terms Ali, of how you do, you, do you think the EU might be a little bit suspicious insofar as if this option, which we've kind of quasi-discussed this evening, can work for Northern Ireland, that the UK government turns around and goes, well, if you can do it over here with Northern Ireland with a land border, why can't we do it over here with Dover and with Calais and the, the underground?
0: I mean, I think I can understand why they'd be concerned. I do think that it's worth noting that these level of challenges are fairly different between a land border and a sea border. So um, while you could make use of uh, uh, trusted trader schemes, um, you know, which will be necessary anyways um, when trading goods across the, uh, the channel, um, it's not going to be to the same extent of what would need to come for the land border. So I think the two things are are related, but not necessarily entirely the same. That you, you can't really apply um, the exact same rubric for what would be needed uh, at the land border to the sea border. It, it naturally involves more barriers, anyways, at the sea.
2: Yeah, I mean the land border is three hundred and ten miles long, whereas a port might be wide, but it's it's not.
0: So the, this, the sea border also, and this is interestingly relevant to the question of can and should one do anything in terms of um, across the irish sea you know a sea is a natural barrier anyways it slows down progress to begin with and so when you look at it from the point of view of what's happening at dover um, there isn't the same leakage i think that uh, into the single market into the eu that eu authorities would be worried about with the land border because once you know the issue is is that once you get past the land border, it becomes a little bit more difficult sometimes to track everything um, rather than, you know, a sea you're forced to stop um, and, and everything is checked off. And you still have that to some extent now.
1: We've talked about all the challenges, and I think we do that all the time ad nauseum in Ireland. What are, what are the opportunities in Brexit from the IOD perspective uh, that we hear about all the time from, uh, you know, a large elements of the, the Conservative Party?
0: depends. I mean, it's a different business by business. There are some businesses um, who might think this is an opportunity to um, uh, maximize their access to the GD market, for example. Um, There are some people who would, even if it's not necessarily a a free trade oriented um, or free trade driven reasoning, there are some people that might benefit from I don't know, WTO tariffs or tariffs generally, because it makes, you know, in domestic import substitution more likely. Um, it means, you know, it is as a, as a result, of course, of um, uh, disrupting sort of, you know, pan-European supply chains that include the EU. Let's, let's not um, uh, make any mistake about, you know, what the source of it is. But, you know, there are some companies that, that might benefit um, uh, in that sense. Um, from, from having that sort of disruption, so to speak, because it boosts the um, uh, potentially sort of the GB market and trade with the GB market um, to a certain extent. There are some companies that may be looking at, you know, expanding into the GB market if they haven't already done it um, before because of that sort of knock-on effect of, uh, you know, domestic sourcing becomes more important than, uh, not, not more important than, but sort of in a way to try and offset the loss of access to the EU market. So I think that's, that's certainly one of them. Um, you know, if you were looking at the regulatory question, is there scope for slightly more flexibility, uh, you know, even though we're clear we need some pretty robust um, uh, state aid provisions and the PM has said that there are some companies who think that actually the way in which state aid law, even though the UK has driven most of it at the EU level um has been too exacting on tax breaks to boost regional growth, regional investment, etc. So there are some companies that would think that that's potentially a good thing if you have somewhat more flexibility in terms of how that operates.
1: It's It, it sometimes seems to Irish people that the UK wants, you know, we, we heard David Davis there say, you know, as close an agreement as possible so there's no border necessary um and you've talked about you know a customs union and very close regulatory alignment one would wonder sometimes what's, what what's the point of of leaving in that case if you want as close an agreement as possible a uh, close re- as close regular alignment with single market rules as possible and a sort of customs union Well,
0: i'm not sure i can speak for an essay david davis i wonder if maybe he's thinking about and i you know he has talked about this that his job is not to seek divergence it's to seek the option to do it more so more than what you have now um you know and i think that's why the government is putting this three baskets approach forward to sort of separate the areas that it says that you know basically continued complete close alignment bordering on let's say harmonization would be beneficial and those areas let's say in services where the impact might of uh, uh, sort of because the single market isn't harmonized in services the way it is in goods there might be less of an impact in the same way that you would if you were trading in goods of Brexit on the services market, and that allows you to have slightly more freedom in regulating, um, you know, uh, emerging sectors uh, and the rules for those sectors and sort of digital trade and so on with the rest of the world. So I think, I think his standpoint is that he's trying to look at this from the point of view of having more freedom to choose than one currently does as members of the EU. Uh, uh,
2: w- was the three baskets approach not roundly rejected?
0: It was interesting that it was, uh, I saw both the, the Taoiseach and um, Donald Tusk doing that. I mean, I, it's interesting. I don't know what's been put forward yet. I, I, To my knowledge, the UK hasn't put textual proposals on the table yet because we aren't in that space. So I think it's a little premature to dismiss something out of hand that hasn't really been fully, fully explicated. Um, uh, you know, I think you need to wait to see it. And to some degree, I think it's worth pointing out that even though it's for um, a very good reason, that the notion of... S- cherry-picking, I suppose, isn't foreign or anathema by any means to the EU. In fact, that's what the joint report does. Is it says in the areas that we think are important, these rules should stay the same and will continue effectively on that basis to grant you the same access that you have now. So people use sort of cherry-picking in different ways.
2: And so you said, you said we're not in the time or the space to get that sort of clarity. When, when do you expect that we will have a clearer picture of, of what the UK wants in detail?
0: Um, It depends on whether we end up sticking with policy proposals by speech or whether the UK decides that it wants to publish some of its proposals. Um, Obviously, the EU has been much more forthcoming to date. Some of that may be about gamesmanship to some extent. Uh, You know, it it may be that 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 clarity isn't really brought forward until, um, you know, because there's two processes here that are going on, you know, reaching the final relationship negotiations, you first have to do a framework, which basically has guidelines for the future relationship. And then you really get into the details which are important for business planning in the actual free trade agreement or economic partnership uh, that can't be concluded, certainly at least until after the UK has formally left the EU during the transition. So it depends on the level of detail, I think, that's being discussed. But, um, you know, because the general outline could be very vague or it could be, you know, put with some detail and there may be political considerations to why or why not the UK wants to put that much detail on before negotiations are close to finishing. So it could be as late as, uh, or as early as sort of, let uh, I'd say the end of this year, beginning of next, or it could be in two years from now.
1: So I feel like you're being much fairer to the UK government than perhaps we're used to hearing on our radio stations and television stations here in Ireland, because you make it sound like, you know, um, policy by speech as opposed to policy by you know these kind of official documents that come out from the eu is some sort of part of a larger strategy of holding the cards close to the chest which theresa may and david davis and others have reiterated time and time again do you think there's merit to that or are they just unprepared as many people in ireland suspect
0: well, that being in government, it's hard to judge. Um, you know, we, we have made the point before that it's hard, particularly at this stage, for organizations like the IOD to engage with their counterparts on Europe on the details of what it is that, that we think that we need and what the UK government wants without having those details to hand. So, you know, I, I think, you know, if, if the UK government definitely does want us to engage with our sister organizations on the continent, we need to have more of that detail. Um, And I think to date, because of the way the process has been sequenced and staged, um, you know, which we were clear at the outset, we thought that the EU should treat this as one whole process rather than really dividing it into withdrawal and then future relationship issues because of the interplay, particularly with the Irish question. Um, It's kind of uh, made it difficult to engage with the government on the details of future relationship because their argument has been we are only able to. Discuss and focus right now on the withdrawal and separation issues. So I think we're rather relieved, even if it's very belated, that we're now finally, after hopefully the summit this week is passed, onto the future relationship discussion.
2: Um, Ali, that was great. And, and thanks very much for joining us. And I suppose just to end on one of the big crunch issues, did you come to resolution on the London dairy question or dairy, London dairy?
0: Dairy London Dairy seems to be. I, I'd heard the Dairy London Dairy thing. I I think it's slightly less of a mouthful than always having to constantly refer to the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement. Which, if you have to say that several times in a sentence, both sides can be a little bit um, uh, contorted to a certain extent. I, I certainly uh, I think simply from a, a shorthand perspective was calling it dairy. But obviously, um, things are politically sensitive, so one doesn't want to be seen to be making making it a political point to choose one rather than the other. But I, I've been told that you can say Dairy London Dairy, and then potentially sort of just thereafter refer to it as Dairy. Um, I think I might still uh, be cautious for the time being.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's best for all parties concerned uh, in all these negotiations. <laughs> Ali, uh, thank you very much for coming on. I, I think we've uh, illuminated uh, the issue for for our listeners. Um okay. And maybe if you're back, if you're down in Dublin at some point, we might have you on again.
0: Yes, well, I, uh, as much as I've been to Northern Ireland, I haven't been to the South yet as much as I should be. So uh, like I a do a lot of engagement with the Irish government in Brussels, but not enough in, in Ireland itself. So I think the next trip, which will probably be in a few weeks' time, will be and cover the South as well. In fact, I technically went to the South just beyond the invisible border just outside Derry earlier. Um <laughs> because I, I got I got a text from O2 telling me that I was in Ireland. So I guess they think that there's some kind of border already.
1: Well there you go. That's a great way to end it Ali. Uh thank thank you very much.
0: Not at all. Okay. Cheers. Take care. Bye.
1: Bye.
2: Bye. So Brian what is a trusted trader?
1: <laughs> uh I'll have to listen back to the podcast to fully learn it, I think, uh <laughs> Jack. Okay, folks, I think uh, that's all for this week. Hopefully, the podcast is not woefully out of date by the time we we, we put it out and the European Council don't uh, burn it all down in flames. Um, We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Goodbye. And we'll transition out on this (laughs) (laughs) song.
2: Take care. (laughs) That's my like point day of hearing this song, you can break day your neck. Coming up at Hayley, always coming, and day I never day had a cry. Day and
0: I, I, I.